Once upon a time, there were four little rabbits. How old are you, Johnny? She asked. Sixteen. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. It For was the day. best of times. It was the worst of times. A wise old king once said, of the making of books, there is no end. How true today. Of the overabundance of writing published each year, what's worth reading? The answer is simple. Read only the best. Come join the discussion on Just the Best Literature. Well, hello again, everyone. Thanks for listening in today. With me in the studio is my producer, Mr. Dan Arnfield. Good afternoon, Dan. Hello. Good to have you here. Well, in terms of comments, I don't have any comments for today. However, I do want to give a great uh, shout out to all of you listeners that are sending likes to both the JBL and Shakespeare Royal Education podcast that are featured on SoundCloud. So they can't write anything, but they're saying, hey, I really like that. I really like that. So thank you for that. And uh, every now and then, you know, email me a comment so I can read it. So, uh, but it is exciting how many people are actually connecting to, to SoundCloud and they're giving me likes. So, uh, please keep doing that. That's really, really encouraging. Now, for today's program, I want to make some final comments on chapter 10. And, uh, but then I want to start chapter 11. And, uh, chapter 11 is titled The Mamund Valley. And I, I, I think I have too much material still on, on uh, uh, chapter 10, but we'll see what how, how this all goes. But it is, there's some things I think uh, that we didn't cover from from uh, the Malachan force, uh, field force chapter. So I'm going to start today on page 129. So if you have your book out there, you can you can read along. And uh, this is the, uh, I'm going to start at the very bottom of page 129. And in some ways, this, to me, this is really, really interesting. Uh, one of the things we have to remember from, from these uh, last chapters we have is how much respect Winston Churchill had for Sir Bindon Blood. He, he was always actually working for him. I mean, in terms of Sir Bindon Blood was really out there to help him and all that. So, so it's really interesting. But if you remember from the last couple programs, remember uh, Sir Bindon Blood, they're in the, the highlands of India, and uh, the, the Malakan force is out there. And, of course, Sir Bindon Blood was in charge of that, that uh, field force. And what he says at the bottom of the page is that Sir Bindon Blood returned in due course from the subjugation of the Boonarals. Now, if you remember from last time, the Boonarals are just one of the tribes from that northern section of India. And, uh, you know, they're, uh, well, they're a tribe. <laughs> they're pretty wild, you know. Uh, he said he was very, ex- he was a very experienced, this is Winston Churchill writing, he was a very experienced Anglo-Indian officer. And I think it's important that we understand Anglo-Indian is, is remember now, the, the British did form a government in India, so they're the Anglos. And so, so, but it was a united government. There was, the, the British were ruling, but the Indians also had a say in the government. Now, again, it says there he was very experienced in the Anglo-Indian affairs. So he, he said he went up there, he had to, he, he went to reduce the Boonerals because they were, you know, they were moving in and getting ready to, 
to uh, really establish some government in that area. And he, he said he had reduced the Buna rolls to reason almost without killing anybody. <laughs> so, so you can see that Sir Bindon Blood had a way of working with the Indian, the, the, the tribes in northern India. And, uh, uh, he got reason, he reasoned with them and he didn't have to kill anybody. So, so that, that is really interesting. He did have to kill one person. And I'll, we'll get to that here in just a minute. He says that uh, Sir Bindon Blood liked these wild tribesmen and understood the way the way to talk to them. The Pathans are strange people, and the thing is, um, you know, we do have one of our really good employees here. Um, her name is Depika, and she's from India. And I asked her. I said, "Could you tell me about the Pathans?" She says, "Oh, they're a strange tribe of people." <laughs> now you can get online and look look at them i mean you can look at pictures of them they're they're a very famous tribe and they're very light-skinned and they have light eyes they have blue eyes and green eyes and so so but they are definitely northern tribes and uh uh i guess they they do have a genealogy when you go back all the way back to noah and the sons of noah and all that that they're they're more of a white-skinned tribe so it's really kind of interesting and if you look at them the, the women are beautiful. I mean, they're, just, they're gorgeous. You know, they have this fair skin, they have light blue eyes, some of them have light green eyes, and uh, they know how to dress in their their native dress, and it's beautiful, bright colors. But, as Winston says here, they're strange people. And so you're going to see why as we go on. He says, they have all sorts of horrible customs and, and frightful revenges. <laughs> so, so uh, obviously, they're, uh, they're pagan. They've got pagan rituals and all that. He said, they understand bargaining perfectly, and provided they are satisfied, first of all, that you are strong enough to talk to them on even terms, one can often come to an arrangement across the floor of the house, or rather, behind the chair. Now, that is a little hard statement to understand. What's he talking about behind the chair? And essentially, what he's talking about is Parliament. He's talking about the Parliament. There's the House in Parliament. And then there is the chair, and the chair is when a speaker comes up to speak to the house. There's a chair there, but there's also an assistant that sits behind the chair that actually gives him advice, saying, oh, what you just said was stupid. What you just said was wrong. Here's what here's what you should have said. And so there's someone behind the chair working, and he said that that the, the, the Pathans were good at good at this. In other words, they would have really, uh, if they could have gone to England and seen the Parliament, they would have really liked it, <laughs> you know. So, so uh, uh, to me, that that's really really interesting. He goes on to say, now Sir Bindon Blood, and we're going to go now to page one thirty. Clear, uh, he, he said, had cleared it all up quite happily with the Bunarols. There had uh, only been one fight, and that a small one in which the aide-de-camp, Lord Fincastle, and another officer had had gained the uh, Victoria Cross by rescuing, in circumstances of peculiar valor, a wounded comrade about to be finished off. And so so the, the, the thing about what goes on with the Pathans is if you're shot or you're uh, injured but not dead, they're going <laughs> to they're going to cut you to pieces. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we know that went on just recently, you know, in, in, with Hamas in, in Israel. And so, so 
that's a strange custom to be able to to want to do that. And so uh, he goes on to say, back then comes my old friend of Deep Dean days, a, a general and a commander-in-chief with his staff and escort around him and his young heroes in his train. So, so these, these men, uh, some of them died. They, they were given the Victoria Cross, which is a great honor from, uh, obviously the Queen. And then he goes on to say, Sir Bindon Blood was a striking figure in these savage mountains and among these wild rifle armed clansmen. He looked very much more formidable in his uniform, mounted with his standard bearer and cavalcade, than he had done when I had seen him in safe and comfortable England. And so, so remember, they were, they became good friends in England. And then, of course, now Winston is just getting a final view of him, of what he's like when he's out, you know, in the field. And, uh, you know, he, he really does seem to be a very, very, uh, you know, smart and very, very good, uh, leader in the, in the, uh, in, in the British uh, army. But it's, it's interesting. He goes on to say, he had seen a great deal of the British and Indian armies in war and peace, and he had no illusion on any point. He was very proud to be the direct descendant of the notorious Colonel Blood. And I think this is really interesting, so please pay attention to this. And I'm going to put a, a kind of like a little plug in for Shakespeare's Royal Education. Uh, when you, when you, when I'm finished reading this, uh, with Shakespeare's Royal Education, we are now covering a new play on King John. And, uh, uh, now we're going to talk about Colonel Blood. It, it says here, this is, this is his relative. This is Sir Bindon Blood's relative. It says, who in the reign of King Charles II had attempted to steal by armed force the crown jewels from the Tower of London. <laughs> so he goes on to say, the episode, is in the history books. The colonel was arrested as he quitted the tower gates with important parts of the regalia in his hand. Brought to trial, uh, he was acquitted and immediately appointed to command the king's bodyguard. And so, so there's something nefarious going on there. And, uh, Winston, Winston knows it. I mean, remember now, he, he was an historian. He wrote a lot about history anyway. He wrote a lot about the British history. He said, uh, this strange sequence of events gave rise to scurrilous suggestions that his attempt to ab- abstract the crown jewels from the tower had the connivance of the sovereign himself. <laughs> and so, so he said, it's certainly true that the king was very short of money in those hard times and that, that the predecessors of Mr. Attenborough were already in existence in various parts of Europe. However this may be, Sir Brendan Blood regarded the attempted stealing of the crown jewels by his ancestor as the most glorious event in his family history. <laughs> and so, so if you really uh, study the history of the English kings, you know Charles II, he ended up getting his head cut off because of the treasonous things he was involved in. And so, so uh, uh, again, I don't know, if I were Sir Brendan Blood, I don't know if I'd want to be bragging about that. But there's a reason why he's bringing this out here in the book. He says, uh, he goes on to say, uh, however this may be, Sir Bindon Blood regarded that attempted stealing of the crown jewels by his ancestor as the most glorious event in his family history. And in consequence, he had warm sympathy with the Pathan tribes on the Indian frontier, all of whom would have completely understood the incident 
in all its bearings and would have bestowed unstinted and discriminating applause upon all parties. And so, so that in other words, the Pathan tribes are just as guilty as, as Colonel Blood was, you know, conniving with the king. And so, so in some ways, he's giving us a hint that the Pathan tribes would kind of connect with the, the Indian government. And they, they'd kind of work together. But it doesn't, wasn't always for good. He says, um, he goes on to say, if the general could have got them all together and told them the story at length by broadcast, it would never have been necessary for the three brigades with endless tales of mule and camel transport to toil through the mountains and sparsely populated highlands in which, in which my next few weeks were to be passed. And so, so he's saying, well, if they could have heard this, you know, they would have seen, you know, uh, Sir Bendon Blood as a friend and not an enemy, and they would have just let everything happen, you know. But uh, they didn't, you know, they just don't know all the details. He goes on now, again, talking a little bit more about Sir Bendon Blood. He says, the general then, already a veteran, is alive and hail today. So so when he when he wrote this book years ago, um, Sir Bendon Blood was still alive. I think he was out of India by that time. And it says he was still hale. And, uh, that's another, it's just another English word that means hearty. He still, he still has good, good health. He had one personal ordeal in this campaign, a fanatic approaching in a deputation called a jirga. In other words, there was someone who was not happy with Sir Bindon Blood. And, uh, you know, it's like they're calling for a, a gunfight. He says he whipped out a knife and rushed upon him from about eight yards. Sir Bindon Blood mounted upon his horse, drew his revolver, which most of us thought on a general of division was merely a token weapon, and shot his assailant dead at two yards. <laughs> so, so here the, the Pathans, by the way, love swords, and so they were going. He was going to one of the Pathans was going to kill him with a sword. He just got up on his horse, cool as a cucumber, got out his revolver, bam, shot the guy dead. So uh, that would have put a lot of uh, fear and probably a lot of respect in the Pathans, you know, so, so it, it is easy to imagine how delighted everyone in the field force down to the most untouchable sweeper was at such an event. <laughs> so, 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 uh, he, he, he's giving us a really good insight and, uh, hopefully you're all have, are, are reading this or have read it by now. And it, it's really giving a, a view of, Let's, let's say the weakness of human government. It can also give us a view of the strength sometimes of human government. But, you know, it's, it's whenever we're involved in wars and even soldiers are involved in wars and we experience this in Vietnam, we experience that, you know, World War One, World War Two. there's always corruption. And, and Winston saw it. And, uh, uh, one one of the other big things on this this page I think is interesting is he's talking about the political officers. Now this is something that you really have to read this to understand it. But the political officers, they were not warriors. They were not soldiers. They were there to decide, you know, political matters. In other words, what was the what were the politics behind the fighting? What were the politics behind the war? And uh, Winston doesn't have a lot of good things to say about the political officers. And uh, he goes on to say, it's not my purpose to relate the campaign. 
I have already written, as will presently appear, a standard history on this subject. Unhappily, it is out of print. I will therefore summarize only in a few sentences its course. The three brigades of the Malacan force moved in succession through all the valleys. I have mentioned trailing their coats before the tribesmen and causing them such inc- much inconvenience by driving off their cattle for rations uh, and cutting their crops for forage. So, so when the, the British went through this countryside for the Paytons, they took their cattle for food and they took their, they, they were raising corn, took that for food. They just took it. And he goes on to say, then the political offers, officers who accompanied the force with white tabs on their collars parlayed all the time with the chiefs, the priests, and the local notables. These political officers were very unpopular with the army officers, and they were regarded as marplots. So they were in there stirring up trouble, basically. And, uh, uh, but they're called marplots. He said it was alleged that they always patched things up and put many a slur upon the prestige of the empire without ever letting anyone know about it. They were accused of grievous crime, of shilly-shallying, and uh, that's that's a really interesting word, and that means uh, the shilly-shally is that failure to act resolutely or decisively. But what you really what what Winston is really saying is that they were. Sometimes they were very connected with the tribes and working with them in a, in a very nefarious way. He says, They were accused of the grievous crime of shilly-shallying, which being interpreted means doing everything you possibly can before you shoot. We had with us a very brilliant political officer, a Major Dean, who was much disliked because he always stopped military operations. Just when we were looking forward to having a splendid fight, and all the guns were loaded and everyone keyed up. This Major Dean, and he goes on, uh, by the way, why was he a major anyhow? So we said, being in truth, being nothing better than an ordinary politician, would come along and put a stop to it all. Apparently, all these savage chiefs were his old friends and almost all his blood relation. <laughs> so, so Major Dean was heavily involved with these people. Nothing disturbed their friendship. In between the fights, they talked as man-to-man, as pal-to-pal. They had just talked to our general as robber-to-robber. And so so Winston says he didn't know much about the Chicago gangs, but essentially Major Dean was mixed up with a, a, a Chicago gang. He's talking about the Pathans. And uh, uh, it, it's, to me, it's just really, uh, first of all, it's interesting that when he wrote this book, there were still Chicago gangs. And then today, what Chicago is just devastated by the gangs. And so, so history is still repeating itself. Uh, anyway, he's saying, in some ways, what, what Winston is saying here, it really ticked him off because he wanted to fight. <laughs> you know, he said, look, we on there, he says, we on the other hand wanted to let off our guns. We had not come all this way, not come all this way, endured all these heats and discomforts which really were trying, you could lift the heat with your hands. It sat on your shoulders like a knapsack. It rested on your head like a nightmare. In order to participate in an intermittable interchange of confidences upon unmentionable matters between the political officers and these sulky and murderous tribesmen. And so, so he said, look, all I want to do is shoot these people. 
and these political guys come in and they stop it all because they're criminals too. You know, they're in with the they're in with the tribes. He goes on to say, um, "Hey, they wanted to shoot at us, and we wanted to shoot at them." <laughs> he says, "But we were both baffled by what they called the elders, or as one might now put it, the old gang." And by what we could see quite plainly, the white tabs or white feathers on the lapels of these political officers. However, as hitherto usually been the case, the, the, the carnivorous forces had their way. The tribes broke away from their old gang and were not caught by our political officers. So a lot of people were killed. And on, on our side, their widows have had to be pensioned by the imperial government and others were badly wounded and hopped around for the rest of their lives. And it was all very exciting. And for those who did not get killed or hurt, it was very jolly. <laughs> so so there is Winston the soldier. He's talking about, you know, what what has really gone on in, in, in India. And um, uh, he's very honest here. And uh, uh, bottom of the page 132, he says, I hope to convey to the reader by these somewhat irreverent sentences, some idea of the patience and the knowledge of the government of India. It is patient because, among other things, it knows that if the worst comes to worst, it can shoot anybody down. It's a problem to avoid such hateful conclusions. It is a sedate government tied up by laws, tangled about with parleys and many intimate relationships, tied up not only by the House of Commons, but by all sorts of purely Anglo-Indian Indian restraints varying from the grandest concepts of liberal magnanimity down to the most minute obstructions and inconvenience of red tape. <laughs> so, so he's pretty honest about what was going on in India. Uh, but, but he saw that there was a real problem with the government. And he said, uh, he said, still from time to time, things will happen. There are lapses and what we call regrettable incidents will occur and it is with one of these that the next few pages of this account must deal. And so he's saying, look, the, the government is, was really a problem. And um, he's saying, look, there are some re really regrettable things happened in this uh, when the Malakan force was right there. And so what, what he's then directing us to is chapter 11. And... Uh, this is the chapter title is the Mammond Valley. And in other words, what's going to happen here is there is going to be a regrettable incident where a lot of people are going to get slaughtered and a lot of British. He goes on now. This is the top of page 134. And uh, we're not going to have time to get deeply into this chapter, but I just want to introduce it to you and uh, um it's, we'll, we'll have to continue with this the, uh, the next time. But, but this is what Winston says here. He says, The campaigning on the Indian frontier is an experience by itself. Neither the landscape nor the people find their counterparts in any other portion of the globe. Valley walls rise steeply, five or 6,000 feet on every side. The columns crawl through a maze of giant corridors down with fierce, snow-fed torrents, foam under skies of brass. Amid these scenes of savage brilliancy, there dwells a race whose qualities seem to harmonize with their environment. Except at harvest time, when self-preservation enjoys a temporary truth, and he's talking about the Pathans now, the Pathan tribes are always engaged in private or public war. 
And so, so the, the Payton tribes, they're, they're up there trying to govern them. They're up trying to help them. They just like to fight. They like to, uh, you know, kill each other. And it almost remi- uh, reminds me of the family I grew up in. I'm just kidding. <laughs> anyway, no, there, uh, there was four boys, three girls. Uh, you know, what do four brothers do? You beat each other up. Anyway, it says, uh, he goes on to talk about the Payton tribes. And, and all of you out there are listening, get online and look at the Payton tribes. Because you would never think they're these bad people. I mean, they, they're just, they're really a strikingly handsome people. He goes on to say, every man is a warrior, a politician, and a theologian. <laughs> it sounds like it sounds like the British today. A- anyway, he says, every large house is a real feudal fortress. Uh, uh, it is true, only of sun-baked clay, but with battlements, turrets, loopholes, flanking towers, drawbridges, etc., complete. Every village has its defense. Every family cultivates its vendetta. Every clan its feud. The numerous tribes and combination of tribes all have their accounts to settle with one another. Nothing is ever forgotten, and very few debts are left unpaid. So, <laughs> so you know, that kind of a climate, you pay your debts. If not, you're dead. Um, anyway, to me, uh, hopefully all of you out there listening and see the genius to his writing. I mean, he's, he's giving us a view that we would never get from a history book. And it's really, it's really just, I mean, he, he, he really re- researched into this and watched it all. He goes on to say, um, for the purpose of social life, in addition to the convention about harvest time, a most elaborate code of honor has been established and is on the whole faithfully observed. A man who knew it and observed it faultlessly might pass unarmed from one end of the frontier to another. The slightest technical slip would, however, be fatal. <laughs> so, so he said, the life of the Pathan is thus full of interest. His valleys nourished like, alike by endless sunshine and abundant water are fertile enough to yield with little labor the modest material requirements of a sparse population. He's on to say, into this happy world, the 19th century brought two new facts, the breech-loading rifle and the British government. And so so the, the, the thing is... Uh, <laughs> he's joking there. It doesn't. It's not really all that happy. But what the what the uh, British brought in? They brought in their breech-loading rifle, and they brought their government. Now, it's uh, it's always disappointing to have to say this, but that's all the time I have for today's program. Now, on our next program, we'll finish chapter eleven and uh, about the Malmud Valley and. We'll just maybe touch briefly on chapter 12, titled The Terror Expedition. And so we're going to have a lot to read about the wars that Winston Churchill was involved in in India. Now, you can buy my early life at Amazon.com. You may be able to find a good used copy at abebooks.com. You may be also to find, be able to find a copy in your local bookstore. Of course, you can also check your local library. Please write me any comments you may have to jbl at pcog.org. You can follow JBL on Twitter at jbliterature1. You can also follow JBL on Facebook. Simply search for just the best literature. And if you have time, start listening to Shakespeare's Royal Education because I'll be talking a lot about the kings of England. 
And uh, I think you're going to get a lot out of it. So until next time, keep reading. You've been listening to Just the Best Literature on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG. Streaming online at kpcg.fm and thetrumpet.com.